Welcome to the Runner's World Show. I'm David Willey. This week, we catch up with executive editor Tish Hamilton to see how her quest to run less this summer is coming along. And in the kick, we discuss a controversial run across the country that's happening right now, the amazing Molly Huddle's upcoming marathon debut, and a new Facebook emoji you might like. But first, an interview with journalist, author, and 1968 Boston Marathon champion, Amby Burfoot. Stay with us. Tides can turn, but if you work to know yourself, don't have to worry about nothing else. So I run. Joni, Billy, Meb, Greta. Running certainly has its share of one-named icons. If you're a fan of the sport, you hear that first name and you know exactly who the person is and what he or she has accomplished. Here's another, Amby. Although I'd argue that Amby Burfoot has distinguished himself in two fields, running and journalism. Amby's been running for more than five decades and he spent the past 38 years working at Runner's World as an editor and an award-winning writer. He was the top editor of the magazine for 18 years and is currently a writer at large. He's written five books, including the recently published First Ladies of Running, 22 inspiring profiles of the rebels, rule breakers, and visionaries who changed the sport forever. When it comes to the sport, Amby is best known for winning, quite unexpectedly, the 1968 Boston Marathon. As part of our 50th anniversary this year, we've been republishing some of the best stories from our archives on our website and giving them an enhanced visual treatment so that they are even more enjoyable to read. We call them Runner's World Selects, and one of those stories is Amby's piece about his Boston victory. It's called Running Scared. In it, he relives how it felt to actually be leading the race that he fantasized about winning for years and how he dealt with an equally powerful sensation, the fear of losing it. I first heard Amby tell this story, I mean really tell it, from his vulnerable point of view and in great detail, in the wee hours of the morning while riding in a van with a few other Runner's World staffers during the Hood to Coast Relay. We were riveted. When I spoke to Amby recently about this story, I asked him to rewind even further to explain how he became a runner in the first place and to set the stage for his unforgettable performance in Boston 48 years ago. So, Amby, if you would, just take us back to the beginning. I grew up the son of a YMCA director, so he was a sports guy. So as a child, 6, 8, 10, 12, I loved all the traditional sports. I played all the traditional American sports. I had a bit of an obsessive personality. I could put it nicely and say I practiced a lot. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I don't mind saying that I got pretty skilled on a basketball court. I could not just shoot a right-hand hook, but I practiced with the left hand as well. I got very skilled in baseball, less in football. That took a little bit too much brawn. One day at basketball practice, when I was in 10th grade, we were having a crummy practice. The coach was really pissed off at us, and he basically said, 
You guys suck. Get the heck off of my basketball court and go run the cross-country course. So it was the usual story. You have to run for punishment. The half dozen or so of us went around the course, and I was the first guy back. So after that, I had one of these intellectual decisions. Would I like to be the last guy on the basketball team, or should I try this new sport, cross-country, and see if I was actually good at it? I had the incredible good fortune, a miracle, that the cross-country coach at my high school in Groton, Connecticut, was the best runner in America. He made two Olympic teams in the, uh, the marathon. He won the 1957 Boston Marathon. He won eight consecutive national titles in the marathon, which will never be equaled. And he was the smartest, most brilliant man I've ever known. His name was John J. Kelly, not to be confused with John A. Kelly, the elder at Boston. He was known as the younger but it was having the good fortune to have his path and mine come together. The principal of the school on Boston Marathon Day would break into the, uh, into the PA system uh, when Kelly was running the Boston Marathon, and we would get updates every half hour or so. That was really my introduction because there was no TV, radio down into southern Connecticut. And in our local community, he was famous. He ran other road races, and, and so we got plenty of Kelly from my very first day running my very first cross-country race of three miles. I wanted more than anything to become a, a marathoner, to run the Boston Marathon, to seek, to strive to equal Kelly's record of winning the Boston Marathon. And when did you realize that that was actually going to be an option for you? Uh, yeah, I don't think anyone at any time should ever say that they're going to win the Boston Marathon because you're not. You know, the, yeah. the odds are just too long. It's like saying you're going to make the NBA or whatever when you're a junior high school basketball star. But I was lucky. I had a certain amount of talent. Uh, I didn't start running until my junior year in high school, which seems late now, but was probably just right. And I improved pretty dramatically for several years. The obsession that I've already uh, talked about fed very easily into running because obviously if you train a lot, if you out-train other people, you're likely to beat them. In those days, I absolutely believed that whoever trained the hardest was going to win the marathon. I don't believe that any longer. I believe there's more nuance. So I was running 100 miles a week, 120 miles a week, and in 1968, a month before Boston, I had something happen to me that never happened in the rest of my running career. I got into this state of flow, and we've all heard about flow. We've all wanted to lead a lot of our lives in this perfect place where that which you're trying to excel at becomes effortless and easy. I got there once in my life, and it was a month before Boston, and I had a magical month of running when every workout and every effort and every warm-up was easier and faster than I had ever run in my life, and that continued right up to the Boston Marathon, and I thought, whoa. So at the time, you were a 21-year-old senior at, at Wesleyan College, right? I was a 21-year-old senior and had run two previous Boston marathons. Right. So the story opens at 
mile 18 of the Boston Marathon in 1968. You have just turned the corner at the Newton Firehouse onto Commonwealth Ave. And as you've said, you were having a dream day. The dream day was the first 13 miles, which felt effortless. After 13 miles, I did a little surge. We were a pack of about 10. I figure I'll do a little surge. Maybe I'll drop somebody, get whittle the pack down to nine. So I did this little surge, and I looked around, and eight people were gone, and now there's only two of us. And so this is the big but. I'm having a dream day, but so is another guy, or something's going on because he's right there on my shoulder. And of course, in the real dream day, you don't finish second, you finish first, but that's a complete unknown to me at the 18-mile mark as we begin to head up the, the Newton Hills. You and this other runner who is Bill Clark. Bill Clark, I knew him, he knew me, we both knew that he's gonna beat me at the end in a sprint, because we had raced before indoors and outdoors and things like that. So very clearly, I have but one tactic, which is to just run the hills as hard as I can possibly run the hills and try and get away from him on the hills. And when I tell the story, I remind people that it was a sunny, warm day and sunny in Boston. There are no leaves out on the trees yet in April. So a sun is a, is a real sun. And also when you turn into Newton, you start running directly east and the afternoon sun is directly west and back of you. So it casts long shadows in front of you. And I'm running up the Newton Hills looking at two shadows. One of them is me, and one of them is the other guy, Bill Clark. He's perfectly content to be the shadow who's a half stride behind because he wants to wait for the end. I have no choice but to just thrash myself on every hill and try and make the other shadow go away. So I kill myself on the first hill, nothing happens. I kill myself on the second hill, nothing happens. I go into the third hill saying prayers and just running to the last drop. I look down and there's still two shadows. He's still right there. So of course we've got nothing left but heartbreak in my mind that, that I can do anything. And I just remember running myself just to an absolute standstill by the time I got to Heartbreak Hill, hoping that the second shadow would disappear, that Bill Clark would drop away because I was running so hard on Heartbreak Hill. I get to the top. There are still two shadows. I literally, I remember, I almost literally stopped and just collapsed there because it felt so futile and so discouraging and so disappointing. This was literally a specter. It was like a ghost trailing me up the hills. I couldn't get rid of him. He was going to outkick me at the end of the race. I just didn't even want to run the last five miles if that's what was going to happen. We go down uh, the downhill past Boston College, and suddenly the shadow's gone. I, I have no idea what has happened, but there's no second shadow. As all of us have studied the Boston course through the years, we now know that the downhill running is particularly troublesome for some runners in particular, and he had a high stride because he was a kicker. He just cramped up on the downhills. He was running fine, but his leg muscles gave up on the downhills, which has only happened to about 98% of all Boston runners through the years. It's what happens at Boston. 
spent the last five miles running alone at the front of the Boston Marathon, feeling like I was running a 12-minute pace, like how much longer am I going to be in the lead before, you know, a hundred other runners catch me from behind and pass me, just terrified. And it's a hot day, and there are no water stops in the Boston Marathon in 1968. There are never any water stops in Boston in the 60s. Nobody knows anything about that. There are a few kids who hand out lemon slices. You think it's an orange, you grab the lemon, and it just about (laughs) chokes you. Um, So you hadn't taken in any fluid at this point? No fluid at all. And I'll tell that story at the end, too. I was part of a physiology experiment that day, and I got weighed before and after the race. So the other thing that's germane is that there's no crowd control, and yet the crowds are huge. It's a holiday. The college students, the, the, the people of Boston have been following this race for 60 or 70 years. They're all into it. They literally come and I'm heading down the road and there's no road in front of me. There's just a crowd of people. And of course they part and let me through and then they close up behind. And I'm looking back the whole darn time waiting for the tide of humanity to pass me. And I can't see anything because the crowd closes in back of me. So again, this is why the title's Running Scared. I I ran very scared the last five miles. Because you couldn't tell if there was anyone behind you, and if there was someone, you didn't know how far behind you they were. I, I looked back constantly. I, I was just in fear and dread. And even though I know you're not supposed to look back and betray your weakness, we all know that. I, there was, I had no control over that. I was looking constantly, and all I saw was the crowds closing in back of me. But when I got to the finish line, I remember... My, I was like a, a wet Raggedy Ann doll. I just collapsed into Jock Semple's arms. I didn't have an ounce of support in my own body, and he just held me up and supported me at the end until I could get it together again. Jock Semple, Jock, the race director of the time. That's right, and the coach of John J. Kelly, my coach, and somebody I knew from previous New England road racing. So he was in my corner. He was quietly rooting for me. And so at the start of the race, I weighed 138 pounds because I was on a scale. At the end of the race, the physiologist put me on the scale, and I weighed 129 pounds. And that's like an 8% weight loss, which is supposed to put you on the edge of death or something. But in fact, I was on the edge of death. From dehydration. (laughs) From dehydration. But uh, I survived. Turns out one of my few talents as a runner is I'm good at being hot and dehydrated, <laughs> which is a real talent uh, when you're running the marathon because that's what happens. But uh, You wrote in the piece, I look more like the tottering scarecrow in The Wizard of Oz after he's lost all his stuffing. I wonder, are you? do you have any regrets at all that you didn't get that sense of elation leading the, and ultimately winning the Boston Marathon? I have never thought that, David. It's a very, very good question. I have never thought it. And I think the reason is simply, realistically, the elation of crossing the finish line and living with that the last 50 years seems to me like such a gift, such a rarity, such an experience that only one in a million or whatever people have. Sure, I would have loved to have broken away in the first mile and waved to the crowds the whole way, but that that wasn't the the way the race was going to be, and so I just consider myself so fortunate 
that the record book shows that I was first and Bill Clark was second. Have you talked to Bill Clark about that race and asked him what it looked like from his point of view? Uh, we've certainly had the conversation. He talked about the fact that he felt really good and he thought he had a really good chance of beating me. But then, you know, when the legs go, the legs go and, and you've got no control over them. And that's that's what happens with the downhill pounding at Boston. It just, uh, Greta Weitz was on world record pace at 23 miles far ahead of the field and she walks off the course because her legs have gone. Uh, that's what happens yeah. at Boston. So you fall into the arms of Jock Semple, the, the famously gruff Jock Semple, who the year before became famous for trying to rip the race number off of Catherine Switzer's sweatshirt, the first woman to wear numbers in his race, and was body checked off the course by her then boyfriend. Jock, in fact, even kind of barked at you on race morning in 1968. But then what did he say to you when the race was over? Oh, uh, afterwards he was like, oh, Ambi, Ambi, great race, Ambi, I'm so proud of you. But he was a gruff man. We all knew that. He did bark at me uh, race morning when I went into the private elite dressing room, and he just he barked at me before he looked at me and realized I was one of the favored because I was a John J. Kelly disciple. Uh, he, he was absolutely gruff. He was absolutely short-tempered. He absolutely believed in upholding the rules, which, of course, is what he thought he was doing with Catherine. And uh, he was totally on the side of we runners who he knew and respected. And at what point did you see John Kelly? John was in the race that year. And in fact, he was still in the lead pack with me at the halfway point. He was one of the ones who dropped away when I did the little surge. He ended up finishing, oh, 10 or 12 minutes afterwards. Uh, and he found me in the dressing room where I think the press interviews were then, and I was being interviewed, and he came in. And I have never been happier to see anyone in my life than I was to see him that day because really, uh, you know, I've never thought that the race was dedicated to him or anything like that, but the race was run with the vision and the knowledge and the passion that he gave me uh, by being the great human being that he was. So I just wrapped him in a limp hug and he just was so happy to see me and just squeezed me much tighter than I could squeeze him. It was a wonderful moment. I have some great photos of that moment. So your winning time was two hours, 27 minutes, 17 seconds. You went on to run faster in your career, but how would you rank that 1968 race when you when you look back on on your best races is it still the day as difficult and as scary as it was uh, oh it's absolutely the day and you know because it was this impossible dream and it was the dream that i got from john kelly i, I i'll say one thing more about my uh running career really what i'm most proud of is not winning the boston marathon but my Thanksgiving Day race, where on Thanksgiving for 53 years in a row, I have finished the same five-mile road race. And I won it a ton of times, and I got my name and picture and all that good stuff a ton of times. But that was 40 years ago. The last 40 years, nobody has seen me. Nobody's taken my picture. I've just been running in the middle of the pack with everybody else 
But I've gotten myself there. I've finished the race, and it's become a really cherished part of my running tradition that I go back to Manchester and try and keep a Thanksgiving Day streak alive as long as I can because I think the true essence of the distance runner, of the person who has a disciplined endurance lifestyle is not how fast you can run but how long you can keep your foot in the game and and maintain the physical and mental sharpness that we all would like to have in our lives. So like many Boston Marathon winners, you come back on every five-year anniversary to run the race again. And fast forward to 2013, which you ran on that anniversary, which of course was the year when when the bombings occurred. You were caught in the bottleneck on Comav with hundreds of other runners and were not able to finish. But you decided to come back in 2014. Why? Well, we all wanted to come back in 2014 uh, for many, many different reasons. For me, uh, very importantly, at some point when I started running and training for 2014, I realized I wanted to come back and thank the citizens of Boston who have stood at the roadside for 55 years while I've been running the Boston Marathon, they have always been there for us. They were the ones who were injured, maimed, and killed at the finish line in 2013. I wanted to thank them for being part of what is so great about the Boston Marathon, the community and spectator support, town after town after town after town on the way. So, as you know, I printed up little business cards that said something like, thank you, Boston Marathon supporters. You are really the reason this race is so great. And as I ran the race, I looked for little kids and older people and anyone who who looked interesting and sort of gave this card into their hands. And I've done that a couple of years since then. It's just become a fun thing for me to do. I really like somehow giving a little something back to the spectators. Yeah, you gave me one of those cards in 2014, and I carried it in my wallet still. It's a special race, and you are a special runner who won it in 1968. Thank you so much for looking back on it and taking us through it again. Ambie Burfoot, editor-at-large of Runner's World and 1968 Boston Marathon champ. Thank you, David. It's always fun to relive 1968. <laughs> To listen to my full interview with Amby Burfoot and to read his story, Running Scared, go to runnersworld.com slash audio. About a month ago, executive editor Tish Hamilton was on the show explaining why she planned to back off running, at least for the summer. After a long stretch of battling injuries and bronchitis, Tish had a really bad marathon in April. To get back on track, she knew she needed to take a break from her strict running routine and to spend time building strength by doing other things. This is not easy for a running addict like Tish, but she came on the show and announced to the world that, yes, she really was going to run less and would spend the summer cycling and hiking and hitting the gym. Recently, editor Christine Fennessy went out on a ride with Tish to see how she's adjusting to life on two wheels. I really need to have a mental and physical break from hard training. And I thought, well, you know what, I'm going to really learn how to be a better cyclist and, and uh, build up some strength that way and give my body and, uh, and my brain a break from the just, you know, train, train, train. 
Yeah, totally. And I, I, I think that that's so true. I tell people all the time, I think it's the greatest cross training ever, because if you're, if you're not feeling good, if something's like a little bit twingy, just get on your bike for three days. Don't run, get on your bike. And you know, most of the time it's gone by then. It's no secret. You know, we talk about it in the magazine all the time. Cross train will make you a stronger, better runner, but it's just hard to take the advice that we're always giving in our magazine. This isn't the first time that Tish has tried to morph into a cyclist. And while she'll always prefer running, she does admit that there are a couple of cool things about cycling. A couple of times last year when I was kind of flirting with being a bike rider, I went out with the lunch ride at Bicycling Magazine, which is also um, in the same building as Runner's World, and I was able to keep up. And that's also really thrilling because those guys are fast and hardcore, and being able to keep with them is like, first off, it's really exciting, and second off, it's total bragging rights to come back and tell your running friends, hey, I kept up with the bicycling crew, and I went on the lunch ride. Woo, the lunch ride. Oh, my God, the lunch ride? <laughs> yeah, and like you feel like a real badass. <laughs> Tish may have felt like a badass, but it didn't last too long. That's because instead of cross-training between cycling and running, Tish just layered her rides over her runs. She overtrained, which led to the injuries that landed her here in the first place, and more on that later. For now, on to the other thing she realized about cycling. I will say... Riding a bike, especially on weekends when I can go longer, when I've got the time to do three hours or so, it's a different kind of fun. It's a different kind of exhilaration. Cycling, of course, requires a bit more gear than running. Tish went all in. She bought all the stuff she needs, like new shoes. They've got two Velcro straps and this other thing that you have to, like, click into thing, clicky thing that, that tightens around your foot. I have to see if it's tight enough. There we go. And... Her fancy new helmet. Now I've got to put on my, my helmet's nice bright yellow color. The idea there is that everybody will be able to see me. Standing there dressed in her cycling kit, meaning her shorts and her jersey, and her new shoes and her new helmet, Tish really does look the part. She looks comfortable. In fact, she's not. You know, you know, this is the thing about riding a bike that all bike people say, Oh, you know, are you comfortable on your bike? Are your bike shoes comfortable? And it's just kind of baffling because really there's nothing comfortable about the shoes or the bike. <laughs> What's comfortable is like nice pair of running shoes, going for a nice easy run. This is all not comfortable at all, but I'm trying to get used to it. <laughs> we get on our bikes. I'm on my mountain bike, which is a bit more stable than my road bike so I don't kill myself trying to ride and record at the same time. It's a bit gray and chilly out, but at least it's finally getting green. It's a beautiful day. We start rolling along, but right away, Tish points out a problem. So, clipping in and out of the pedals is really tricky. See, cycling shoes have cleats on the bottom that clip into the pedals. When you're clipped in, you're more or less locked in. That means you can push down and pull up on the pedals, which increases the power you have in propelling the bike forward, especially up a hill. But for new riders, Clipping into and out of pedals can be nerve-wracking. You have to do that whenever you come up on a, on a crosswalk. And whenever I come to a crosswalk and I, and I see a light, I have to think about it way ahead of time. and go, okay, I'm going to clip out, and I'm going to put on the brakes, and, and I'm going to put my foot on the ground. And you try to do all that without falling over, because falling over is, one, dangerous, and two, really embarrassing. I've, I've, fallen, I've fallen over a couple of times and I even fell over once when I was out on a ride with all those guys from Bicycle Magazine. And, and, and I, we stopped and I was trying to clip back in and I fell over and oh my gosh, the humiliation. 
Tish finally does get herself clipped in and we start riding. We're on a paved loop in a park that's about a mile long. It's mostly flat, but there are a couple of rises and a short hill, which means you have to change gears occasionally. When you're going up, you want to shift into an easier gear, and when you're going down or on a flat stretch, you want to shift into a harder one. But knowing where those gears are and how to engage them can be a bit of a mind bender for new cyclists. I had to come up with some little uh, rules for myself about how to shift into easier and harder gears. And it goes like this. On the right-hand side, if you want it to be easy, you have to push two of them at once. So that's easier. I push two. If you want it to be harder, you just do the one like that. Oh, that's harder. Oh, that's harder too. <laughs> now how in the heck am I going to remember that, right? So here's my little thing. If you have one parent at home as a parent, it's much harder. Hence the one click. <laughs> and if you have two parents at home, it's much easier to raise a child. So that's how you know the difference between hard and easy. Two parents are easier, one parent's much harder. And that applies to my life because I'm a single parent. <laughs> but here's the thing, it's not the same on the right and the left. So the left is a mirror of the right. I just basically don't change gears on the left very much because um, it's too hard to remember. It's just better not to shift that side. <laughs> When you tell this stuff to a runner, a runner totally understands. If you tell this to someone who rides a bike, they fall over laughing. <laughs> We're going to go straight here. <laughs> We're not alone on the loop. We pass a couple of women walking in the pedestrian lane of the track, and we roll past a dad riding bikes with his daughter. And on the hill ahead of us... There's also a runner. Hello, runner. You're my people, really. I promise. How does it make you feel when you're... Uh... You're seeing your people. <laughs> Probably I should get off the bike and explain what I'm doing. <laughs> do you feel like do you feel like it, you have a, this sign on your back that says, I, "I'm a new I'm a new cyclist"? Oh, I definitely I have a sign on a really big like neon sign flashing over my head that says, "Not a real bike rider." And see, I don't even know what to call it. So you're not supposed to say bike rider. You're supposed to say cyclist, because a bike rider is actually a, a motorcycle rider. Just in case you're wondering. <laughs> Who knew? I still can't get that right. Okay, now I'm getting all confused. Easy as two parents. Click, click. You're a natural. <laughs> Tish might feel like an imposter, but she doesn't look like one. That's because this time around, she made a really big gear improvement. She got a bike that fits her. I really didn't realize, you know, how much different it was going to feel to be on a new bike. She'd had her previous bike since 1999, and it was too big and too heavy. So she went to her local bike shop, bought a new bike, and got properly fitted for it. One thing I noticed that's really different from the other bike I was riding, the, the handlebars are, are a little bit positioned a little bit higher so that I'm not quite as hunched over as I had been previously. So that means that my, uh, the back of my neck and my shoulders uh, don't get as sore. And I also feel like I can see the world a little bit better, which I'm sure is good news <laughs> for all concerned. 
Um, I can really tell the difference. Like my leg is extending more than it had been previously. And I feel like I'm getting more out of the pedal stroke um, than I had been able to do. And my back doesn't feel quite as hunched as it had been. So those are all, those are all good things. I hate to use the word comfortable because I, it's, but it certainly is a whole lot more comfortable. And the, it just, it's easier to pedal. It's easier to get uphill without standing up, which I, you know, pretty much always have to do, stand up to get up a hill. It's, it, it's lighter, quite honestly, to pick up and, and hang up on the hook in the shed, uh, which is, you know, something to think about. Long direction, that's too hard. Remember, Tish flamed out in her last attempt to become a cyclist. She failed because she spent too long riding a bike that was too big. Eventually, she got hurt. Like a lot of newcomers to cycling, she figured she'd just adapt to the bike she had. Would she have done that with a pair of running shoes? No. You can't be a happy runner if your feet are begging for mercy. And the same goes for cycling. You are not going to love it if your back, your shoulders, your neck, and your knees hurt. But getting comfortable on a bike doesn't necessarily mean you have to shell out for a new one. An expert can help you tweak all of the measurements on a bike that can make your cycling life easier. You gotta just do what Tish did and roll on down to your local shop for a fit session. And who knows? You might discover you're actually looking forward to your cross-training days. And this thing is just so much easier to ride. So I'm really excited about that. I'm excited to try to take it on some more miles and uh, longer rides. This isn't the last we'll hear from Tish Hamilton on her project Build Strength. She's got a big hike planned later this summer, so we'll check in to see how a running addict is learning to love walking. Now it's time for The Kick with editor Brian Dalek and reporter Kit Fox. Okay, Kit, I am back from my honeymoon. I missed a lot of stuff while I was gone, so I need you to catch me up. And I, I know we've all been working on one kind of weird, long, crazy story about an ultra runner. Yeah, I think it was happened right around when you were on the beach in St. Lucia. We, you know, were working overtime. So let me just give you a quick primer, <laughs> primer here. Um, the first story we're talking about is uh, a British ultra runner named Robert Young, who's currently trying to break the world record for the fastest run across the country. It's a 36-year-old record uh, in the current time to be this 46 days, 8 hours, and 30 minutes, which uh, averages to about 67 miles a day. Yeah, so that's like two and a half marathons a day for a month and a half. Exactly, and that's part of the reason why this record hasn't been broken in 36 years, because it's, it's so difficult to actually 
run the record. But another thing that's really difficult about it is it's really, really hard to prove. Um, a few people have already tried to attempt it this year. Uh, two have failed. But what a lot of these ultra runners are finding is that there's skeptics out there. And there's definitely been some controversy with Robert Young and with people not believing that he's run this entire distance. So what are people questioning about his run so far? Um, there, there's a couple things. One is just his overall pace. He's carrying a live tracker with him, and based off of that data, um, he's had several stretches where he's run upwards of six and a half to seven minute miles overnight. He usually likes to put in about thirty to forty miles overnight because it's cooler. Mm-hmm. So they're they're kind of questioning that capability. Um, and there's also been some video posted of a runner who went to try and find him at one a.m. And just to log a couple miles with him, um, and the runner found the RV, but there was no runner in sight. Now, I had the chance to speak with Robert and his crew for over an hour um, earlier on this week, and they, they flat out deny all these accusations and offered some explanations like um, sometimes the live tracker that he's carrying, he forgets to put it in his pocket and it's in the van instead, and sometimes the van gets separated from him. Um, he likes to run behind it, and if he gets off pace, he'll drop off. Uh, from the back and end up meeting the van, you know, a few miles down the road or things like that. Um, but the main point is, you know, he completely denies any sort of cheating, but now he's under a lot of scrutiny. There's been a website called Let's Run that has over 2,000 posts on it about his run. Um, and people are really, one of the big things they're looking for is for him to release GPS data. He wears a GPS watch, but he hasn't release that publicly. Yeah, and like put it on Matt Myron or Strava just so they can see what he's been doing. Exactly. And now, um, as we record this, he's in the middle of Illinois, and he's actually had three pretty legendary ultra runners start to tail him. Um, One of them is the race director of the Barkley Marathons, uh, Gary Cantrell, more commonly known as Lazarus Lake. He's in the car with two of his buddies, and they're pretty committed, say that they're going to stay behind him and um, see what he can do until he reaches New York City. So on the elite side of things, late last week, Molly Huddle, who is one of our top female American runners, she made a big announcement about her upcoming race plans. Yeah, um, she actually announced that she's going to run the New York City Marathon in the fall, and this is going to be her first marathon. It's really one of the most hotly anticipated announcements of any Mm -hmm. sort of distance that America has had in a while. Um, Molly, over the past year, has just been on fire, just had a string of victories. I think her prize money last year was $151,000. She's uh, won major races and distances from the 5,000 to the half marathon over the past year. Yeah, she actually won New York City half twice. Yeah, and she also, um, last year at the New York City Marathon, broke the American record. She ran that race in an hour and seven minutes. So we expect some pretty big things from her in the marathon, although even ahead of that... She's going to be busy (laughs) before she even gets there. Yeah, so she's going to be running in the Olympic trials in Eugene, and she's expected to make the American team in both the 5,000 and 10,000 meters. So Molly, obviously excited for Rio and her upcoming marathon, but she has some other big news that she's been working on since last fall. Yeah, she's been on this campaign over the past few months to introduce a female running emoji. Right, and there's always kind of been the guy looking like he's running emoji, but never a female running which, emoji. Yeah, which is really a shame, and it's very exciting. You can't yet get it on iPhones or Android devices. It's only on Facebook, but Molly is really super pumped about this. Uh, she's made T-shirts, 
And I'm sure that when she dominates in the 5,000 and 10,000 meters, she's going to announce that with a couple female running emojis. Um, and a couple thumbs up. Exactly. I was going to say... Maybe you know, a gold medal emoji. Oh, of course. But, we, you know, we want to give Molly a huge thumbs up emoji for accomplishing this. A 100 emoji. Uh, several hundred emojis. Should Maybe. I just go through my emojis and just keep saying things she could add? Like a fire emoji? Fire emoji. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Kit, thank you. I feel a little bit more caught up by doing the kick with you. I really appreciate the help. Yeah, of course. I'm sorry that your nice St. Lucian tan, though, is, is disappearing in the darkness of the studio. It is fading. Yeah, yes. but uh, just a nice a nice ring and tie and heart emoji to you, my friend. Congratulations. Thank you. My favorite emoji is the pie emoji. I just send that to everybody. So a pie emoji to you. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> Don't have to worry about nothing else. So I run. That's it for this week's show. Thank you for listening. If you haven't done it yet, please rate and review us on iTunes. We really want to know what you think of the show. This week's episode was produced by Sylvia Ryerson, Christine Fennessy, Brian Dalek, and Mervyn Deganos, with editing help from Rachel Swaby. The music you're hearing now and that you heard at the top of the show was written and performed by Thunderhoof. I'm David Willey, Editor-in-Chief of Runner's World. We hope you'll join us next week when we make the connection between running and NASCAR. Well, guys, let's be disciplined today and just do everything we can to get a good finish. Hopefully we can make some good adjustments and get this thing toward the front here. Good pit strategy and uh, have a good day. Get a solid top 10, top 15 finish. Man, time we go to work here. You don't want to miss it, so join us next week. So I...